All right, so as we continue our discussion of our statement of faith, uh, this one's not in the statement of faith, but I would propose that we would add it according to the order uh, that we looked at the last two weeks. And uh, the reason for this would be that since we don't have something on angels, this is something where um, our society today is a weird mix of materialism and superstition. And so I just think that it's helpful to have a statement on angels to sort of clear up some of that confusion. And also because since Satan is a significant, if not the most significant enemy of our faith, and there wasn't anything in the statement of faith other than at the very end talking about his judgment, I thought it would be helpful to have a, uh, at least something about him here in the statement of faith. So uh, we'll just start with the first phrase there. The, uh, the smaller text down below, I see it flipped the page on the wrong edge. Sorry about that. Uh, the smaller text down below is uh, something that I had written up a long time ago. So I included it mainly so you can see other scripture references we might want to include. Uh, certainly it could be improved upon. But the short uh, rough draft up at the top, angels are invisible spirit beings created by God to serve as messengers and as servants. Any thoughts on that phrase? Any clarifications needed? Numbers 22:31 is, of course, the story of Balaam and his donkey, and until God opens his eyes, he doesn't see the angels standing there. So that's where the invisible comes from. Jonathan. Give me an example, if you would. passage about they'll bear you up so you don't dash your foot against a stone that Satan quotes to Jesus, but other than that, I'm not sure that there's a... Uh, see if I can find that one here. Let's see here. I know there's a disputed passage related to um, when Peter comes to the door and acts, and they say it's not Peter, it's his angel. What do they mean by that? To me, that one's unclear enough as to what it actually means that I'm not sure it's real strong support for the idea of a, of a guardian angel, if that's what we were thinking of. Um, all right, Matthew 18.10, okay. Okay. <laughs> 
Okay. Okay. Are there any other references besides that one that would have the idea of uh, angels and protection, angels and um, some other? Is that what you meant by watchers, Jonathan, I assume? or Okay. I mean, I suppose there's the idea of uh, the angels in heaven rejoice when one is brought to repentance. They're observing events on earth. Um, we could include that reference, certainly. Yes. I suppose one of the questions we'd have to ask is, along this idea of a guardian angel, is it a one-to-one -one relationship? Is it only for children? Is it for people? And that would be my hesitation about putting a statement in there without more biblical data in the sense of, uh, I think it's something we should certainly wrestle with, but if someone came in and said, I don't believe in guardian angels, are we going to say, oh, you can't be part of the church? You know. So that, that's, that's, again, I think part of the tension. I think the fact of their existence is very clear. I think, the, generally speaking, their role would be very clear. Um, to serve as messengers as, and as servants, if there is such a thing as a guardian angel, then I would think it would certainly fall under that category of servants, of God and of people. Um, let, me, uh, let me look up that reference and, uh, and do some more thinking about that. And, and when, we, when we loop back around and review our next however many sections, let's revisit that. But, uh, Let's move on to the next phrase. Some of these angels rejected God's authority and fell into condemnation. Um, I don't think there would be much dispute about the fact of their condemnation or their rebellion. Sometimes there is dispute, particularly with the next phrase, about which scripture passages actually support that. So 2 Peter 2.4, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And then similarly in Jude, angels who did not keep their own a, a domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Yes. Yeah, there's a number of instances in the Gospels uh, where Jesus casts out demons. Uh, the guy that's living among the tombs, and uh, for example, they go into the pigs and, and all of that. Uh, his words about one spirit being cast out and going and finding seven more, and the state of the man is worse than it was at the first. I think between that passage and these passages, I think that we would have to recognize that not all of them are presently bound 
at least certainly not to the same degree. And I think that there would perhaps be parallels to what happens with Satan itself. There is a period in the end times in which he is bound, and then there's other periods in which he's free to walk about. I don't know that it's an exact parallel to all of the fallen angels, but I think that that would probably connect with our understanding of it. Yes? Does it make sense to reference and uh, align the fallen angels with humans? Uh, yeah. you have any verses that you would suggest? Okay. Yeah, this was something that I was certainly I was thinking about. There's there's certainly more references that we could include. I think that would be helpful for sure too, because we don't want to just give one side of the picture. They're all locked up because then that that begs the question of what about demonic influences in the world today? There's also the question. I don't know where we would fit it into this statement about the idea of uh, the conflict that we see. Um, let me look here at Daniel 10. All right, so I know it's the name of a video game, but there is biblical precedent to it. This phrase, Prince of Persia, is unintentionally a biblical illusion. Um, the idea is simply this. In Daniel 10.13, uh, the angel comes to Daniel and he says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days, and then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. So, the greatest of the fallen angels is Satan, who walks the earth and seeks to oppose God's plan, but he doesn't always do it directly himself, because he's limited in power, finite in ability, all of those sorts of things. And so there is evidence, I think, at least from this passage in Daniel, if not other places, that there are spiritual conflicts going on between angels about which we are not necessarily aware, and that they are sometimes connected with nations. Now, I don't know that we could push it so far as to say that each angel has a territory that they defend or... Or, or that sort of thing. Um, I do think it's fascinating that that is the concept that people who are pagan peoples have of their gods. And to the extent that their idolatry is connected with, as Paul said, I don't want you to be sharers in demons in terms of participating in idolatry. I think there's something standing behind that, which is the idea of when people worship an idol, the idol itself has no power, but it's not as though there's no spiritual force connected with it. In other words, uh, Ephesians 6, uh, powers of wickedness and spiritual forces in high places and all that sort of thing, there are demons who stand behind and energize, to some extent, the evil acts of men in authority, the horrors of various evil religions. And so I think that that's something... There's, diff there's different extremes that we can go to. We can go to the extreme of saying there's no such thing as demons, there's no such thing as forces that we can't see. We can go to the other extreme where we become obsessed by it and everything that happens, we say, is because of a demon. 
Uh, I think at this point it would be helpful to consider the movement, I think it was popular probably in the 80s. How many of you heard Frank Peretti? Okay, This Present Darkness and a couple other books, Piercing the Darkness, some of those sorts of things. It was popular in Christianity at the time. The major flaw in those books is that it assumed a doctrine of angels that said that the entirety of the Christian life, the key to sanctification, was dealing with demonic forces that were the specific cause of sinful acts. In other words, when you got angry, it had nothing so much to do with you personally. You were being influenced or controlled by the demon of anger. It was external to you. Whereas the New Testament clearly lays out the fact that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, that we have to put off the old self, put on the new, all of those sorts of things. So we can't, you know, the, the, the classic phrase, the devil made me do it, a demon made me do it, is an easy out because it allows us to externalize sin away from ourselves and say it has nothing to do with me and I have no control over it. And the solution is to cast out the demon instead to do the hard work of day after day, reading scripture, fighting against our sin nature, all those sorts of things. Paul. Sure. So, let's see here. Trying to remember if. Yeah, Job 1 would be a good one. Um, actually, Job 1 and 2 both sort of illustrate the point. There's also the question of. Um, other passages that would support the idea of God being greater than angels and or that they are under his power? Where, well, what specific? Okay. Okay, yeah, so Genesis 3.15. So I wonder if we we would want to split those off into two phrases. I think Genesis 3.15 probably would be good to go with that last phrase I've got there. And then another one, add another phrase that... And uh, I had one in there. I think I, I showed Kelly at one point when I was working on this. I had something in there about God being greater than than the angels and, and controlling their actions, and I couldn't get the wording right, so I left it out because I knew one of you would bring it up. So, um. Going back to Daniel 10, 13, one thing that I thought was interesting is it references the prince of Persia, but then it also says one of the chief princes, King of the 
Right. So it's just interesting that both of them refer to as princes. Right. I mean, I'm wondering, is that the same word? And is that a common reference to English? Yeah, I would have to look at it, but I think it's... Uh, That I can recall off, offhand, yes. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to look that up. So here's here's something I think we should we should uh, consider when it says the greatest of the fallen angels is Satan, who walks the earth and seeks to oppose God's plan. Um, I didn't put Isaiah 14. So turn to Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14 and verse 3 is where it starts. And it will be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved. You will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say how the oppressor has ceased and how fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the peoples in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you are no laid low, no tree cutter comes up against us. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, Even you have been made weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed covering beneath you, and worms are your covering. How have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble? who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who did not allow its prisoners to go home. All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, clothed with the slain who are pierced with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. You will not be united with them in burial because you have ruined your country, you have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers not be mentioned forever. Prepare for his sons a place of slaughter because of the iniquity of their fathers. They must not arise and take possession of the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. I think there's about three common views of this section. One is that it's only about Satan. One is that it's only about the king of Babylon. And the third is that it's about both of them in some way, either that some of the verses refer to one and not the other and, and, and so forth. So the challenge for me of seeing it as exclusively about Satan is particularly the first part and 15 through 21 seem to clearly fit a human ruler. The challenge with it saying it's exclusively about a human king is 
when it says star of the morning, sun of the dawn, and so forth, is that, does that correctly describe any human king? Well, what reference would you see that as being from? Okay. I think that one of the challenges is we tend to say this passage talks about Satan, not necessarily this one, but another passage will say that passage talks about Satan, and so then this one talks about Satan on the basis of the other passage, but we're making an assumption on the other passage. Um, I think it's clear from Scripture that Satan was exalted and then that he was cut down. My only question is, in what way is Isaiah using this imagery? If I had to say, how would I use this passage? I would say that the arrogance of the king of Babylon mirrored the arrogance of Satan in his rebellion against God. Because otherwise, I'm not sure, I don't think we can say it's just about a human king. And I, I, think, I don't think we can say it's just about Satan. And I don't know that we can say, well, this verse is about Satan and that verse and sort of alternate back and forth between them. That seems, that seems confusing. Let's look at a parallel passage as well, which is Ezekiel 28. I'd probably say analogy instead of allegory, but yes, yes. It seems similar to when David is writing the Psalms, and yet Christ is quoting them, and it's almost like, okay, was this just meant for Christ, or was David saying it too? It just seems like there's that overlap. Right, and we'll actually get into a couple of those in the sermon this morning, because there's the question of how does Peter use the Psalms Going back to that question of prophecy and, and language and how it's used, there's a, a school of thought that says that scripture writers, when they were writing, didn't always know what they were writing, and so other people later made it clear what they were writing. I'm not sure that it's fair to the prophets to say that they were as ignorant as that view would have us to believe, just in light of what it says in Peter, because Peter says they searched intently to see when the Christ, when the Messiah would come, when were these things going to take place. If they had little to no awareness of what it was that they were writing about, why would Peter make that sort of statement that they were searching intently to understand them? I don't think they understand every last detail because there were some of those things that were progressively unfolded, but I don't think that they were just sort of writing things down. They're like, I don't know what these means. I, I hope the people down the road figure it out. So I think that that's important for us to think about uh, because a simple solution is to say that it's about both and that language can apply to one thing here and another thing here and sort of just sort of be a little bit sloppy in my opinion in how we use words. Yes? Okay. 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 But if you look at uh, if you look at Nebuchadnezzar's rule, 
even in the dream that God gave him, you see that same sort of imagery. You're a tree that's rising up to heaven. God cuts you off, puts an iron band over your stump. You're cast down. Um, but, uh, it's something for us to think about. Again, this wouldn't be a question of, does this have relevance to the discussion of Satan? It would just be a question of, is this sufficient support for Satan's fall? So let's look at the Ezekiel 28 passage. Well, you said 14.12, right? That's the passage that we're looking at, Isaiah 14. So I, I'm not sure that we can use... Yeah, no. So, no, I'm not trying to... I'm, not trying to be, I'm just saying, I think that we... It's easy for us to assume things because we've heard them so many times. I'm just saying, let's step back and think about them. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying, let's think about them. Same thing with the Ezekiel passage, 28, uh, 11 to 19. This one, I think, is more clearly referencing Satan, and I'll show you why in a second. So, 28, 11 to 19, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, rupee, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, lapis lazuli, the turquoise and the emerald and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You are the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You are on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of the, your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who will know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified and you will cease to be forever. This one's even more challenging in some respects because I don't think that we can exclude Satan from this because of the language of covering cherub and Eden and all those sorts of things. And yet, when we come to a phrase like the abundance of your trade, you are internally filled with violence, that clearly has reference to the human city of Tyre. And so I think what we'd have to see here is a kind of figurative language that is basically saying, here's a prime example of Satan's work in the world and God's judgment on it. And just as God judged Satan and cast him down from his exalted position in heaven, God also punishes this human city that exemplifies the sort of arrogance and pride and so forth that Satan showed. Yeah, so hang, on, hang on just a second. Eric?
Explain that for me one more time in a slightly different way, because I think I'm getting a little bit of the idea of what you're saying, but I want to make sure I'm understanding you properly. Okay, well basically what I was wondering you were suggesting is that in, in God's sight, there's no separation between Satan's being and Satan's works through the uh, being of Satan Okay. That there's no separation between the two. Okay. Hmm, I'll have to think about that. You, on the basis of these two passages, you're saying? Yeah, on the basis of these passages. I mean, I mean, you can also be, you know, in there, multiple times versus your father, the devil. Yeah. Yeah, let me think about that some more. I think that's a good thought for us to uh, think about. Yeah, that's a good thought. Let's think about that some more. Um, it is interesting, and it, the language is so similar between Ezekiel and Isaiah. Right. And I, I, I would say it is extremely clear that he's referencing Satan by mentioning him being in Eden and how he was decorated. Yeah. So, but then it does seem like it's that third category. Some of the verses are specifically about Satan, and some of them are maybe about both. So, thinking about what Eric is saying. I mean, if we take a step back and we say, who is Satan? He rebelled against God. God's going to punish Satan for his rebellion. God's going to punish all those who ally themselves with Satan. And that's what these two passages illustrate. I think in a simple, at, a, at, a, at a basic level, I think we can say for certainly that much. The precise relationship, uh, the, and I think that the part of the question is, can a word have multiple references at the same time? And I think we would have to say, um, I would lean towards saying, no, word can't mean multiple things at the same time. And yet, I think that a... I mean, I think from these passages, I think we can see that a... a um, I'm trying to think how to describe it here. think so. I mean, it's a pun because you know that it doesn't, right? It wouldn't be funny if it meant the both of those things, actually, right? Well, I mean, something simplistic. But okay. I mean, to say that the president trumps what some, somebody else said, doesn't that have multiple meanings? I don't know. You're the one that brought up univocal nature language last week or two weeks ago, right? so... Right. <laughs> But it has multiple meanings because you're trying to fit to it a meaning that it doesn't actually have. Because trumped is not is someone's name. It's funny to us because it's a name.
but that's not the meaning of the word, right? Is that? Sure, but it, 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 in a sense, it's expressing two different things. But, but in that context, all right, so Paul's point. What was the intent of the author in writing this? And I guess that's what I'm saying. Is if the intent is there, it has multiple But I don't think that the intent of this is multiple meanings in the sense that he's saying, I mean, I think we could phrase it this way. God will punish Satan and all those who follow him. And he is referencing that by this phrase, king of Babylon, because we see Babylon being used in different places as a, as a figure for the world opposed to God. Right? So then, who else was in Eden besides Satan? The presence of sin itself, maybe? Presence of sin itself. I mean, why else would he say you were in Eden every precious And going back to Eric's point, if I understood it correctly, if he says, King of Tyre, you will be punished, who's ultimately the one that's ruling over the world? Who's the god of this world? Yeah. Satan. Is that the, that's what you're saying? Basically, yeah. Yeah. And it seems like what we're trying to argue here is Satan's reign is something that God sees as black and white. Okay. And that's why we're trying to Yeah. So anyways. Yeah. I, I think it's... Uh, and part of the reason that I brought it up because I think it's helpful for us to think through it. So I know that sometimes in the past I've had discussions with people and uh, they got mad at me because they assumed that I believed a certain thing. What I was trying to do with this was not to mislead any of you, but to say, let's think about it. What does this passage say? And so... Um, right. All right, uh, let's see. So as long as we're all on the same page about the fact of God punishing Satan, let me put it this way, that the king of Babylon is not Satan in terms of Satan is not equal to the man, but Satan is the power that stands behind the man and all of that sort of thing. If we have that understanding of it, then I'd be fine with adding the Isaiah 14 passage to the Satan walks the earth and seeks to oppose God's plan, because I think it does illustrate, uh, I think it ties in well, for example, with the Daniel 10:13 passage. I think p perhaps we might want to also include Ephesians 6, and I want to say... Six twelve. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So I think we would probably want to add that reference to the idea of what's going on. And sort of circling back around to that idea of casting out demons, I think it's significant that in Scripture we are over and over again commanded to resist the devil 
we are not commanded to actively take authority over the devil. Resist the devil and he flee from you, not Satan, I bind you and cast you out or some sort of ritual. The reason I think that's significant is if you look in Acts 8, which we'll get to later this year, Phil, um, Philip goes and preaches among the Samaritans. There's a man named Simon, not Peter, different Simon. And this guy is doing all these miracles and people are calling him the great power of God and all these sorts of things. He wants to buy the ability to control God's power. And connected with that, there are seven sons of a Jewish priest who go into this, this house, try to cast out a demon. The demon beats all of them up and throws them out in the street. I think at least part of the intent of that section was to show a contrast between the apostles laying their hands on the Samaritans, praying for them that the Holy Spirit would come. In other words, I come before God, I ask Him to do something, recognizing that it's His power, not mine, versus a magical approach which says, if I get the ritual right, I can make this happen every time. So that's why I think that this idea of binding Satan, binding demons, all of those sorts of things, which is, you know, kind of popular sometimes in literature, this idea of controlling vampires or drawing circles and raising demons, or all these sorts of ideas, I think that that's opposed to a biblical view about how all these things work because those things are not under our authority, they're under God's authority. And even when they were cast out, the only one who had authority to cast them out of himself was Jesus. Even the apostles couldn't always do it, right? Jesus said this kind of only comes out by prayer. They had to go before God and ask him for his help. Right. Right. The Lord rebuke you. Right, right. So, I think this is helpful for us to think about because it's easy for us to say angels don't exist because I don't see them. We tend to be blind to things that we don't see happening right in front of us. But in the same way, not in the same way, but in a similar way to the fact that the Holy Spirit is at work in the world, and like Jesus says in John 3, you see the wind blowing, you see its effects, you don't see it with your eyes. I think that there are ways in which Satan and his fallen angels are working in the world which are not necessarily our job to identify because we can't know that 100%. They're not our job to seek to control because that's God's realm and God's authority and we are not in one of these eras in which God has given specific power to us to do all these sorts of things. But I do think we have to be aware of their reality without being obsessed over them. So when we see something strange and inexplicable, one of the things in our list should be, is this something that Satan is doing to deceive people and cause them to fall after him instead of God? We shouldn't go to the other extreme of saying, this was the demon so-and-so who actively attacked this person, because you can't know that. So that's, I think it's helpful for us to think about these things. So I think it's been a good discussion. Any final thoughts as we wrap it up? Yeah. That would be one reason, and then another reason would be the fact that I felt like our treatment of Satan and the statement of faith was kind of lacking.
and since he is brought up a number of times in scripture I figured we should at least have something that describes who he is because it's difficult I mean even when you come to the subject of sanctification what are the sources of temptation the world the flesh and the devil if you don't have anything about who the devil is it's more difficult to support that you know so Norma you were yes Are we fighting against spiritual wickedness in high places? Yes. And Paul would say in that passage that the way that we do so is by putting on the full armor of God and taking up a defensive posture against Satan and his armies and letting God do the active work of defeating Satan. So I would say there's not a place for us to claim apostolic authority to cast out demons in the way that the Twelve did in the early days of the church. I do think that there's a place for us to recognize that there are demons at work in the world today, not possessing Christians, not having power over God's people, but certainly opposing God's plan and purposes. And we need to resist their efforts by spreading the gospel, by defending ourselves through the truth that God has given us in his word. Does that answer you? Okay. Bob. Right. <coughs> well, as good as we have precedent of demons possessing the unsaved, we also acknowledge that, right? Yes. Yeah, might be good to include something about that. Uh, yes, Bruce. Explain. I'm not sure that I would be confident saying that we can know that it was a demon that created a particular experience. I'm not sure what exactly you're describing. I mean, I'd be I'd love to talk to you about it more, but I. Yeah, I mean, again, I think the, the, the tension that I have is I'm not sure that God has given us in the New Testament of age after the establishing of the early church the ability to definitively say 
this experience was a specific instance of a demon doing something or other. And again, I know that there's challenges with that because people say, well, the reason that you would say that is because you've never been to Africa and confronted a witch doctor and sensed the presence of evil and all of those sorts of things. Again, I don't know, I think the, the challenge that I would push back on is people will say, well, I've experienced this in this third world country. And I would say, all right, so at what point do we start saying that our experience is more important than what scripture says? I'm not necessarily denying the experience. I'm just saying I don't think that we can ever give a particular experience more weight than scripture and our understanding of any experience has to be governed by what Scripture says. And so that's the thing that I'm, that I'm trying to push us toward with regards to this topic. Because the Bible says that demons are real, so we don't pretend like our word, world is purely materialistic. The, the Bible also says that, that God is the one who constrains their motions and so forth so we don't exalt ourselves to a point where, like the false teachers, we claim authority over angelic forces and try to bend them to our will blindly and dangerously, like it says in Second uh, Peter and Jude. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something where we have to say, what does the Bible teach? I mean, so I guess the question would be, without denying a particular experience, what's the next step? So I, I observe this. What would be the proper response for a Christian who said, I feel as though I'm being plagued? Because, I mean, Paul says that there was a messenger of Satan to buffet him. And people say, well, that was his eyes. It was some physical malady. The word there is messenger, angel. I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think we can just say, oh, it was, he had bad eyesight. You know, I, I know that there's people that argue that, Second Corinthians 12. What did that look like for Paul? What would his response have been? We don't have detail on it, but I think the response, that, the appropriate response would be to pray and, and ask God, God, I don't understand what's going on here. Help me to resist the devil help protect me, you know, those sorts of things. So, right. Yeah. So, that's a complicated passage in and of itself. So, all right. I, very good discussion this morning, and we'll, uh, we'll press on next week. Uh, I believe next week we start getting into the doctrine of man, which has a bunch of components, so that will probably take us a couple of weeks, and because uh, that ties in with creation, uh, gender, um, yeah. All right, let's pray, and then we will go to the morning service. Lord, we thank you for these truths from your word. We thank you for challenging our thinking. It's easy for us to adopt the perspective of our culture that says we can explain everything through science or that we can explain everything through superstition, and we recognize that you work in the world uh, according to principles that people have discovered and describe in terms of science, but there's also the reality that there is a a world that we do not see in which there are conflicts about which you will ultimately prevail over sin and over Satan. 
and yet there is a battle going on that we're not always aware of. So, Lord, help us to be less blind to those realities, but not to be so consumed by them that we are fearful or hesitant to do your work because you are powerful and you are great and you will accomplish your purposes. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.